invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, as we are continuing a series on the thought life of disciples. If you have missed a few weeks, we saw, first of all, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, that to truly think on the things described here, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, etc., to truly think means to dwell intentionally, to meditate, and then to do so in order to imitate. You're not thinking rightly if your goal is not to act. And then we've seen in the first place, in this list of attributes to think on, truth, and we come this week to the second in the list of attributes. I do want to advise you, especially some of the youth, this list in Philippians is not meant to be exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. It's not all of the things we think on. But it is illustrative of some of those attributes that are most manifested in Jesus Christ that we ought always to return to. This is a kind of curriculum. That's what Paul is doing. He's providing a curriculum of thought for us to go to again and again. And this evening, we turn our attention to the second of these attributes. Let's give attention to the word in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, may you be glorified this evening. Speak in and through the words of your minister. We pray that your scriptures would be exalted and that as we look to you, we ourselves would be transformed. Heavenly Father, we pray that the light which you send forth from the word would be transformative of ourselves, that we would have eyes more and more opened to your calling upon us, that you would excite us with the possibilities that you lay before us through your spirit. The psalmist says, by you I can leap over a wall. And it does appear that increasingly in this age, this time we live in, this place, there are many walls, many obstacles. We thank you that you do strengthen us to make that leap, to be faithful, to take a stand. We pray that you would strengthen us for it in this time. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This evening we're thinking about honor, what is honorable, and Certainly, we want to dispel any sense of honors that are empty. And there are many of those, and the world gives them out all the time. What we have in mind is something weighty, something that has significance. Now, sometime in 2020, I believe it was, our church received a letter, and it was printed on nice paper. It was to inform us that a local group of some kind, some board, had determined that we were worthy of special honor. They sent us a letter, a special certificate, and let us know that they wanted to honor us 
with a special award, and it included a photograph of what that award would look like, and it'd be laser engraved. We could put it in the foyer, and it basically said, this is one of the best churches in Phoenix. And uh, while flattered, Pastor Phil and I wondered, what do they know about us? How do they find us? Have they ever been here before? Is this not just some man in his apartment sending these things out to everybody? And I am convinced that is what was happening. Because the condition of receiving this honor was to send them $200 strictly to cover the costs of the award. Our award, the award of the elders and the pastors of this church, is the congregation. If there's fruit, it's apparent. We don't need a trophy in the foyer because it's apparent for the people who come here, the reception they receive, the care that they receive, especially not if they're here for one week, but if they're here for any length of time. Honors can be empty, and the world often trades in an empty honor. This evening, the Lord, through his word, guides us to do two things, very simply. These will be the two main headings. First, to look at what is the biblical idea of honor. Against all the competing ideas, what is the biblical idea of what is honorable? And then secondly, how should we actually focus our minds upon what is honorable? Are there some examples that we should give special attention to in order that we might imitate them. So these are the main ideas before us this evening. Now, that first main heading, what it means to be honorable. Most simply, what it means to be honorable is to possess qualities or to perform acts which are worthy of respect, reverence, or esteem. I'll say that again, and then I'll contrast it with something. To be honorable means to possess qualities or perform acts worthy of respect, esteem, or reverence. Think how many people wish to be honored simply because they prefer whatever it is that they believe or desire. But not to actually have something that we have all agreed that is worthy of respect or honor. To be honored, in a sense, you have to first be honorable. There has to be something real, something actually worthy of honor. Now, in the gospel, of course, we thank God that he has chosen to honor that which was not honorable. That's called grace. But as it relates to what is honorable, first, it has some quality truly in it properly to be honored. Now, what is that? What are the qualities? Because we know that there are competing notions of what is honorable. You ask 10 different people, what do you honor? What do you respect? There's going to be some overlap, but there's also going to be some division. And that standard changes over time, too. Maybe you recall the very famous, a certain very famous atheist. In fact, I will not give him any more public uh, publicity, any more attention. But a certain atheist famously recently was stripped of an honor that he had received 20 years ago from the American Humanist Society. They had, you know, called him the the best humanist one year, and then 20 years later they say, we're taking back that award. And it wasn't because he had changed. It wasn't like so many times where somebody falls publicly and then they get all their awards taken away. Nobody wants to be associated with them. He had not changed. The standards of that society had changed. And this happens. Who gets to decide what is honorable? Brothers, sisters, everyone here. 
I'll say the most obvious thing, and I'm not tired of it. God. Because how can a thing have honor if it is in competition with him? We serve the living God, the true God. And so honor has to be regulated by what he honors. He is intrinsically worthy of respect, esteem, reverence. Well, then what is the biblical basis for honor? I'm going to lay before you three different ways by which things become or possess honor. How do they become honorable? And I would encourage you, following the sermon in time, apply these sayings somewhat critically to the world around you. Ask whether things are worthy of the honor they receive. Determine for yourself, in light of Scripture, whether or not you ought to honor them. And then think reflectively about yourself, too. Are you a person of honor? Are you becoming more and more a person of honor? The biblical way of thinking about how someone or something has honor, there are three different ideas. The first is this. People and things are honorable insofar as they honor God. Insofar as they honor the Lord. Again, how can a thing be honorable in the fullest sense if it is dishonoring God, who is the highest? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I know it. I know that we don't always feel that sense of awe by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we do. But think from the perspective of glory when we each stand before the throne of judgment. Clothed in a light that is beyond all comprehension, there will be at that point no argument about who deserves glory because it will then, every mouth will be stopped, it will be apparent, this is the being from whom everything came. And so honor begins at honoring God himself. 1 Samuel chapter 2 tells the story of a priest named Eli. Eli had adult sons, and the Lord chastised this priest, Eli, because he honored his sons more than he honored God. It says that he was giving his sons meat that belonged to the Lord. Now, in the context, they were not starving. They were gluttons. And they were stealing from the sacrifices, taking a portion of that, and sometimes the portion that would have gone to the poor, because always with the sacrifices, a portion goes back to the people, and instead they were gobbling it up. And this is what the Lord says in 1 Samuel 2.30. The Lord, the God of Israel, declares, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Maybe not yet, maybe not in this life. Many people in the world are puffed up. They seem great. They shall be lightly esteemed if they have not honored him. And so for us, it begins at honoring him. There is a danger, of course, and that's the danger of lip service. Every one of us at times wishes to have more honor than we actually deserve, to be thought of as better Christians than we are and more upright people than we are. I would imagine every one of us is guilty of that. Hear what it says in Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, this people draws near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Lord desires you to honor him from the heart. Outwardly, coming to church is a good thing. Singing songs aloud is a good thing, but he desires honor from the heart. And if you honor him, he says, I will honor you. 
This is one of the evidences of belonging in Christ, of a transformed heart. And one of the reassurances, we will belong to that age of glory and honor, that he has begun this work in us, that he maintains this work. Proverbs 3 verse 9 gives an example of how people are to honor the Lord. Proverbs 3 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The first fruits, of course, is that portion of fruit that grow at the beginning of the season, sometimes a month or more before the main harvest grows up. And the Lord says to his people, don't give me the second skimmings. Don't give me what's left over at the very end. Set aside a portion now. He doesn't call for everything or even the majority. And that's an amazing thing about the Lord. Nor when calling for things to himself, because God doesn't get hungry. He has no need of anything. When he calls, it's for purposes of distributing out in mercy to those who have need. Whether that need is spiritual through the ministry that we have here, whether that need is tangible, you think of the work that the deacons do. But God doesn't ask for his own sake. But here he says in Proverbs 3.9, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, they do that outwardly. They're, in fact, they may even told themselves, these are the people who claimed to give more than they really did to the Lord, and the Lord brought a judgment of death upon them. He didn't lose his temper. He made an example. The Lord is always displeased with this because honor is about the heart before it's ever about what's on the outside. So this first way to become honorable is by honoring the Lord. The second is by honoring who and what God honors. If we do not honor what God honors, we dishonor the Lord, and we're back to number one. A person may say they honor God, but if they dishonor what God honors, they dishonor God, and they become a disgrace. It would take, I guess, 50 years of preaching Uh, to lay out all the things that God calls us to honor and just the ways to do it. But I do want to draw your attention, by way of illustration and for the sake especially of our youth here, to some of those things which the Lord has chosen explicitly to honor. If you honor them, you honor God. If you honor God, God will honor you. For instance, most basically, fathers and mothers. Exodus 20.12, familiar to us. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul comments on that in Ephesians chapter 6. He says this is the first of the Ten Commandments that has a promise built into it. Ordinarily speaking, if you honor your father and mother, that doesn't mean approving of everything they say and do. But it does mean showing respect, reverence for the position the Lord has given them. If you honor them, ordinarily speaking... You will live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We ought not to think of that simply in a worldly way, although it does to some extent line up with what the world experiences, living longer lives if they don't act foolishly. But again, it's one of the signs of belonging to the age to come. This willingness to reverence what God reverences. That's the land that in Ephesians it's really looking forward to, the new creation. The marriage covenant. God honors it by instituting it at creation and for coupling it with the very understanding we have of Christ and the church. God has honored marriage as this union of two, in some sense, fundamentally different and yet compatible kinds of things. You have God and you have the church. They are different and yet 
together, this is the way the Lord desires them to be. You have male and female, fundamentally different, and yet designed by God together to bring about his will. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, speaks to the need to honor marriage. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Well, what does it look like to dishonor marriage? There are many ways, but here it tells us plainly, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. At the core there, though there are many ways to dishonor a marriage, at the core, you honor a marriage by fidelity, by putting away all eyes and intentions towards anyone else, and in that way expressing, honoring the picture of Christ in his church. When you honor what God has honored, he will honor you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, drills down into another aspect of marriage. It says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Whatever, don't get hung up, by the way, on the weaker vessel. Whatever its meaning there, and I definitely have an opinion on what it means, whatever it means, it's clearly in a context where Paul is overflowing in praise and respect and honor towards women. So whatever it means, it's a good thing. Setting aside for another sermon. But here, there's a duty of the husband to honor the woman because God has honored her. And if you dishonor this woman that God has honored to make an equal heir of grace, you dishonor the Lord. And that goes vice versa too. The civil magistrate, the same epistle, 1 Peter verse. 17 of chapter 2, he says, simply fear God, honor the emperor. They're coupled together because if you're not honoring the emperor, you're not fearing God. It is God who put authority into place. And as much as we might rail at particular people, some politicians, different policies, as much as we might be disappointed in them or disagree, yet imagine if God, by a movement of will, took away all authority, all those structures. And even though we might say, well, those aren't the options. That's so, you know, that's binary. It's just bad leaders or no leaders. We would like good leaders, please. But the reality is we're still sinners and no one of us has been put in that kind of position of so much pressure, I fear, for how I would do in that position. Instead, we ought to give thanks and deal reverently, even while calling for repentance. One of the ways I think you can learn to imitate this is by reading the introductions to our confessions, particularly the Belgian Confession, or reading the introduction. It's not long. It's less than a page. The introduction to the Belgian Confession or the introduction, it's about 15 pages, in Calvin's Institutes because they're written to the civil magistrate. And particularly, civil magistrates who at that time were killing them. And so if you want to see what it looks like to show respect while at the same time lodging a disagreement, that's a great place to meditate and to learn to imitate. Fourth and finally, of those whom God honors, again, this is not comprehensive, but the elderly. It is a matter for dismay that our culture 
does not show the same degree of honor that perhaps it did in the past towards the elderly. There is a cult of youth, and there is a shame in aging. And as people get older, especially in our increasingly nuclear society, by that children I just mean that people often don't live near their extended family now. They certainly don't live with their extended family almost ever. And as a consequence, you're just not around the person as he or she is aging. And then when they become uncomfortably unable to take care of themselves, we shift them away. Now, it's one thing if they can receive truly better care, medically speaking, away from the family. But are we honoring them? Do we yearn to show respect to these people in the twilight of their lives? And if not from their own family, who is going to do so? I don't believe that you can properly outsource honor in the family. Leviticus 19.32. Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up when in the presence of the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. They're coupled together again. When was the last time you saw anyone stand up when an older person came into the room? That used to be standard behavior in Western society. When did it go and why? And I'm not saying that we should, you know, in an affectatious way, ape certain traditions, but we have to ask ourselves seriously, how in our time and place will we show honor? How will we reverence what God reverences? If he's granted someone a long life, that's his providence which has done that. They didn't just eat better. The fact is people who eat better still, you know, give or take five years, usually. All of your better eating and exercise, go ahead if you want. But the reality is providence at the end of the day has set an upper limit. And at that, will we give honor to those whom God has chosen to give long life. He's chosen to invest them, hopefully, with great experience from which we learn. They are not, you know, just tellers of old stories. They are part of the, you know, they're a vessel of our tradition, of wisdom. And so they are counted worthy of honor. And so the second way that you become honorable is by honoring who or what God honors. Be critical, then, of a society as you look around, seeing, do they honor what God honors? Does this show, does this law, does this institution or system, does it really honor the Lord? The third way that we honor or become honorable is by fulfilling our duty or keeping our word. And this is one of the most common ways we actually find in Scripture. If I had to guess, this is probably the primary focus of Paul in this passage. That to be honorable means to have a reverence which is derived from fulfilling the duty that belongs to you. Imagine a police officer getting a call. You know, we believe there's a break-in happening in this place. And he goes there, and he, but the house looks unusually creepy. You know, it's got the shutters blowing in the wind. And he hears an owl, hoo 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 And, you know, now he goes inside, and the stairs creak. And at the, you know, the first loud noise. He just runs out of there. That man is a disgrace to the uniform. He has dishonored his calling. There's a sense in which we readily understand honor is coupled with the fulfillment of duty and the keeping of your word. It's built into certain phrases we have, like they honored the contract. They kept their word. They honored the contract. 
Now, of course, this runs right up against a cultural idol that we have. It's out there, and it's right in here, too. I don't, we've, as much as we are different than the culture, just by being a Reformed church having, we're also marinating in this culture, and it affects us. And that idol is to believe that my deepest duty is to find my true self and to express it. If I find my true self and I don't express it, I am not fulfilling my true duty because the purpose of a human being is to discover their individual distinctions and to live that out before the world. That's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is true. And it is a pit of unfulfilled longings for those who seek to find satisfaction that way. Because you drill down to find your true self and it's like spelunking in a never-ending cave. You go down and down and down and it gets worse and worse and worse and usually more perverse. Dark things, perverse things, are hidden in the depths of the human being, generally restrained by God's goodness. But the Lord calls us rather to understand and interpret our purpose, our duty, our calling from what has stood outside of us in what he has declared and from the structures that exist outside of us. Think how many people make vows to a spouse. I come back to the family again because it's the primary unit upon which society is built. Certainly the one that perhaps more than any other shapes and affects the community of the church. How many people make vows And then after a a period of time, maybe it's, I mean, it's all different times, but it begins to get tough in some way. And they get this sense that their true self needs to be expressed with another person. And that they're just not real, or maybe this is a true story. I will leave all names out. I, I knew a person who was married for a number of years and This person's spouse left them and left a letter. This person says that they didn't see it coming. But the person that abandoned them left a letter saying, I need, essentially that same thing, I need to be true to what before we met had been my goal, which was to be like a competition horseback rider. No, no, no. God has put you in a covenantal bond. You gave a vow. Your duty now, you gave your word, is to your family and to your church. When you walk out, it shatters everyone. And everyone's cumulative ability to trust is broken down. And the understanding of what Christ is like and how the church are meant to be bonded together, that loses capital in the minds of the church as well. Your actions, your honor, have wide ramifications. It's so easy to think in terms of only disobedience and not also dishonor. Children think of disobeying their parents. They don't think in the same way of dishonoring. These are different. Guilt and shame are two different parts. We should be ashamed of dishonoring. It doesn't mean it's an uncurable shame, but there has to be repentance The Bible norms all the standards that we would have for what we regard as honorable. I don't intend to lead you to many of these, but just to a few, I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy, to chapter 3.
And I lead you to some of these texts specifically so that you might return to them for meditation. First Timothy 3, verse 8 says, Deacons, this is concerning the conduct of deacons, deacons must likewise be dignified. This is the same term, honorable. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And so he doesn't just say they should live honorable lives. He clarifies to us some of what that actually looks like. And therefore, no matter what some person wants to say about how they understand honor, this is the standard, period. You look just a little bit further, verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, which means to speak false things of others, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This is the standard. And notice that these largely have to do with your effect upon the community, not simply yourself. Titus, the book of Titus, one more. Turn just a little bit over. God in his providence has graciously gathered all the books that begin with T to basically one area of the New Testament. Titus chapter 2 speaks of Christians in general, and so you will find yourself in here. Beginning at verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, honorable, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, that's honor again, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. There you have again that honor-shame relationship going on. We obtain honor by fulfilling our duty of keeping our word. This, when you think about your vocation, it stands so against the honor that is so closely coupled with careerism. It's fine to have a career. But careerism, the idea that the job that you currently have in itself doesn't have value, only insofar as it's a stepping stone to the next bigger, better thing where you get more and more respect. And that leads to many people feeling dishonorable because their job may not even have an opportunity for growth in that way. I know it's one of the ways that the enemy rejoices. He puts his hands on his belly and just laughs when he thinks of moms at home who have given up some of the world's enticements to be with kids. And there's not really a career tangible, you know, I got a raise in a sense. You know, I got promoted. I had another child, more responsibilities. The way that the Bible looks at honor is coupled not to the rise per se, but the faithfulness with what you are given. Are you faithful in what you do? Do you do what you do for the community and for the Lord, or do you do it for yourself? It's possible to be a completely narcissistic doctor, saving lives but killing your own soul. 
The same is true in any other job. Honor is coupled to disinterested service of others. And so we've seen these are three ways that people gain honor. By way of conclusion, what I want to do is simply lay before you several of the ways that we can meditate, practical ways that we are to imitate. What are we to look to? We live in a time when there are not many examples in the popular culture that match these descriptions. How often do you turn on the television and find a show that's intentionally trying to honor the Lord? I mean, has it happened uh, in a decade? I don't know. I don't watch much. But if it's not there, where are you going to find it, if that's where your time goes? Where do you go to find examples of people honoring who and what God honors? Again, in the popular media, there's not a lot of that. In the popular movies, shows, etc. Do not believe... I plead with you. Do not believe that it has no effect on you or that it does not have an effect upon your family. We tend to become more and more like those things that we spend time with. Human beings are not simply invincible brains, hard drives of facts. We change by being in the presence of things and by looking at things. What we look upon, we tend to look like. So what do we look to? Look with me at verse 9, Philippians 4, verse 9. By the way, I said two main headings. This is the final one, and it also serves as our conclusion. Verse 9, the apostle says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Think especially of heard and seen. In their own presence, they watched the apostle Paul live out what it looks like to be honorable. He didn't go seeking their wealth. He makes it clear in many of the epistles that he worked with his own hands. He was so committed to his duty, his discipline, and he was doing it for the Lord, not for his own sake. He honored what God honored, even when the world laughed at him. He honored the gospel. He honored Christ. He honored the weak. People had nothing to give in return. And in that way, he was a faithful example. I would encourage you, seek out examples from your ordinary life of those who are more honorable. And then intentionally observe them and maybe even ask them. I'm so grateful that my parents, when I was a teenager, organized so that there was almost always you know, with almost no gaps, almost always I had an older mentor from the time I was 14. Different man in the church who would come alongside of me, usually one of the elders in the church. My dad would pay for the meals. He'd say, just go to lunch with my son and just talk. I had that. I, and I'm persuaded. I don't know if it should be identical to that. You make your own choices as parents, but putting our families in the presence of those who are honorable, not just sending them off. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the youth. Youth, please believe it. And the Bible describes youth as leading all the way up, really, to about age 40. So I'm not there yet. Getting close. If we just leave people to their own desires, they, they may not even know what is honorable. But seek out real personal, not just biographies. I will mention, too, I think that we should become better readers of Christian biographies. But there is something weighty about a real human being in your midst where you see they're like me. 
They're like me, but they are faithful. So I'd encourage you in that way, identify people that we can hear and see for yourself and also for your family. And then above all, of course, it means to meditate and imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, follow me as I have followed Christ. Paul's value to us, any of these honorable people, it's only insofar as they are shadows of Christ. One last passage we'll look at. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 introduces a kind of paradox of the gospel. The culture into which Christianity was sent forth was not a culture that honored the weak. If you're not aware of that, it is one of the key facts to understanding the world and the Western tradition. It was a radical change to think of honoring the weak, the powerless, the defenseless. Now, Christianity did not invent it. The Lord had a people, a covenant people, for a long time before that. Remember, God's people are told when they come into Canaan that they are to honor the alien, the sojourner, to not oppress their poor brothers, etc. But the gospel turns on its head many of our ideas about honor. Verse 3, look with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think of the shame of that death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and on, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Meditate on the ways that Christ honored God, the ways that he honored his Father. He says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father. I have work to do. I must be about my Father's business, even from the time that he's 12 years old. He's honoring the Father, and that means any 12-year-olds here, that is your calling as well, to imitate him, to be about our Heavenly Father's business. Think of the way that Jesus honored those whom the Father honored, having elected a people from eternity, and then Christ comes into the world and he lives and he dies for people that God has chosen to honor by electing them. In themselves and myself, he didn't, there was nothing to honor. Whatsoever we have that is good, we receive from him. And yet Christ honored us with his own death. What a wonder, but he did so because he's honoring the will of the Heavenly Father, even as he loves us. And then he's, of course, fulfilling his duty. In order to do that, he had to assume the lowest position all throughout his life, not to be thought special. By God's providence, the book of Isaiah says that to look at Jesus, there was nothing that we should desire him. He wasn't particularly attractive, wealthy, etc., 
The things of the world honors, he did not have, but he did not have them in order that we might, that we might gain all of those things. And there is the paradox of the gospel to think of honor not in terms of the task as others see the task, but our fulfillment of what God has given each one of us to do. Whatever God has given you to do then, don't think so much, how do others esteem this, but does God esteem it? Am I faithful? And may the Lord help us then to do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for giving us an opportunity to meditate on your word. We ask that you would set our eyes more and more upon Christ our Savior to be humbled by his humility and to be encouraged by the honor which we have received being made ministers with him of grace. We thank you for examples in the word of men like Boaz who put their head down, tilled a field, cared for a vulnerable woman, and they get more attention, more space in the scriptures than dozens of kings combined. Lord, you honor those who honor you. We thank you that you have chosen to honor those especially who suffer for your name. When the apostles were beaten and whipped, it says that they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for your name. We pray that you would please more and more renew our minds that we would want your honor more than that which the world can give. In all of these things, you are strong and you are worthy. In Jesus' name, all God's people pray. Amen.